The first lesson is be found in Galatians, uh, Galatians chapter 3. I haven't got the page number, you've, you've got the page number there, 1169. Galatians chapter 3, beginning at the first verse. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain? If it really was in vain, so again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by your believing what you heard? So also Abraham, believing God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, as it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says, the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading is uh, Romans chapter 4 and verses 1 to 12. What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. 
Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before, and he, was, he received circumcision as a sign, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then, he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is then also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you very much. When I woke up on Friday morning to the result of the EU referendum, one of my first thoughts was, well, bang goes my sermon for Sunday morning, what I was planning to preach from. But then I, I reread today's passage from Galatians, which I gather is part of a series that you're working through. And in it, Paul is reminding the Christian church about God's ancient promise to Abraham and to all who came after Abraham, right through to Christ and his church, including us here today. A promise that he would bless the nations of the world that he would bless the nations of the world. Human institutions and those of religion and politics are, of course, as we know, only a means to an end. They are a necessary and important means by which God may bless the nations. And they do that if and only if you and me who are part of them in some way whether we're actively involved in them or whether part of an electorate, whether we live by faith in God rather than by faith in the institutions themselves. So towards the end of my sermon this morning, I'm going to help us think about uh, what God calls us to live in dependence upon Him and interdependence upon one another. I wonder first, as we look at this passage from Galatians chapter 3, I wonder if you have ever been in love. Anyone here? Do you remember your first love? Do you remember what it was like? The constant sense of their presence in your heart, even though they were absent. The anticipation of a future moment together. A sense that so much more is possible 
because you're now in love with each other. There's something very profound and special about a first love. And I wonder how you remember those early days when you fell in love with God, if you've ever had that experience. When maybe the penny dropped with regard to what Christ did on the cross and the nature of the love of God for you and for me. And being bowled over by the fact that this was the Son of God who gave himself for you and for me. And the response that that demanded. A time when maybe, having taken that step of commitment to Christ, you looked at your former life about its preoccupations and priorities, and you thought, well, that's shallow compared with what I have now in Christ. And maybe you once wore your faith, as it were, on your sleeve with passion. A first love. The Jews in the ancient region of Galatia had been introduced to Jesus by the Apostle Paul. They had accepted him, many of them. They had become followers of Jesus. They had a profound experience of God. They found themselves pinning their hopes their identities on Jesus. And it was very real, like that first love. It was palpable. And Paul, writing some years later, he reminds them, he says to them, guys, remember how special it was when you heard about Jesus and you accepted him. Paul says in verse 5 of Galatians 3, God gave you his spirit. He worked miracles among you. Now what's so significant to Paul, do you think, about receiving the spirit of God? How is receiving the spirit of God so essential to this experience of the love of God and our response to that? Well, of course, when we make a decision for Christ, when we make a decision to become a Christian, to become a, a follower of Jesus, we get, as it were, a new identity. Who we are in our skin is different when we've made that decision to follow Christ. Paul says, as he writes to the Christians in Rome, he says, when you become a Christian, God's Spirit joins himself to your spirit and you're able to cry for the first time, Abba, Father. And you're able to be known as a son of God or a daughter of God. When we accept Jesus and we receive the Spirit, our identity is new. I have an adopted daughter, and uh, I remember the moment in the family court down in Taunton, Taunton when the judge said to her, yes, you can join this family and you can take the surname Girling. And she got a new birth certificate. It was only with hindsight we realised how significant that moment was for her and for us. From henceforth, she had a new identity which gave her security 
It shaped her future. Remember, when you decided for Jesus, God gave you a new identity wrapped up in the love of God seen in Christ. He gave you his spirit to assure you of that. And Paul says even more to the Galatian Christians. He says to them, and not only did God give you his spirit, God worked miracles among you. In other words, God's power was evident in this early Christian community. Stuff happened when they prayed. The blessing on the nations promised by God came through those who were sons and daughters of the living God. Serving as nationals in their communities, at their work, in their homes, in their public places. God's power was at work among them. So what released God's Spirit and what released His power to be, amongst work, to be at work amongst these early Christians, this church in Galatia? Well, and this is the crux of Paul's argument in Galatians chapter 3. One thing it was not was this. Paul labors the point, it was not a reward. It was not a reward for Galatian Christians with their Jewish heritage observing the law. Observing the law that they'd been brought up with, that was, as it were, in their bones. A law which said you must be circumcised, you must keep the Sabbath, you must observe the festivals, you must avoid this or that food, you must keep yourself clean in this or that way, and so on and so on. When God came to those first Christians in spirit and with power, it was not because they were obedient to the law. And Paul twice calls them foolish, bewitched. How would you like it if I came to you and said, you foolish people? That must have been tough for them to hear from the Apostle Paul. He calls them foolish because he says to them, having fallen in love with God, having accepted his free and undeserved gift in Jesus Christ of mercy and grace, how on earth could you go back to law-keeping? Paul says you've abandoned your first love. You're going back to your old ways, to legalism, to the human institution of the law, to keep in an account book with God, what one writer called a contract faith. God, I'll do this if you do that. And Paul says to them, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by human effort? By keeping the Jewish law. And to press his argument home, Paul doesn't refer back to the lawgiver, to Moses, but he goes even further back to Abraham, hundreds of years before Moses. And he says in verse 6, consider Abraham. He believed God and it was credited him to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God before there was any such thing as the law. 
and it was credited to him as righteousness. Righteousness, one of those technical terms that I like to think of righteousness as meaning being in right standing with God. Being in a right standing with God by accepting his mercy and grace through Jesus Christ and by living rightly. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. He was in right standing with God. Abraham, before the law came, got it right. And he's saying to the early Christians, let him be your example, a reminder of your first love. And Abraham, as we looked at, was told by God that he would be a blessing, that his nation, his offspring, would be many, that all nations would be blessed through them, and that his offspring would have land. That's what Abraham was told by God. And at the time, Abraham had no offspring, no land, and no standing before other nations. And yet, he believed God. Abraham had nothing to his credit with God, and yet he believed God. He believed the promises of God that would come to pass through his obedience. He was in right standing with God. He walked each day by faith, trusting in God, even when the odds were stacked against him. Because he didn't have a contract faith with God. He had a faith in God that God would be faithful to his promises. And Christians from Galatia had been like Abraham when Paul first arrived on their patch. They believed and they were recipients of the undeserved mercy and grace of God, freely given in Jesus. And so they experienced the Spirit of God and the power of God. But since then, since those early days of that first love, they become by, bewitched by what was in their bones from their old ethnic and religious ways. They'd slip back into a contract faith, law-keeping, attempting to curry favor with God by keeping the law and by putting burdens of the law on other people. And Paul asks in verse 5 a rhetorical question. He says, did you receive the Spirit by observing the law or by believing what you heard? Of course, it was by believing what you heard that you received the Spirit. Abraham believed what he heard from God, the promise of God, that all nations will be blessed by you. And we, as God's people, as children of Abraham, as Paul puts it, we have inherited that promise. All nations will be blessed through you. You who are in right standing with God because you've accepted Christ crucified. Thursday the 23rd of June 2016 will be remembered by many of us. It may be known by some of us as has been said, our 
Independence Day. I wonder if that's how you want it to be known. Is that helpful? Far be it from me to be political, but I suggest, no, that's not a helpful way to remember it. Because we do want to see, surely, God's blessing, as in the original promise to Abraham, continue to be poured out on all nations. All nations around the globe, whatever their forms of government, and whatever the relationships between the governments. What this nation, and what all nations around the globe need, from the church, as it were, from children of Abraham, is for us to demonstrate what dependence on God looks like. For our sense of who we are, who we really are as sons and daughters of God, first and foremost, before being English or Scottish or Polish or Canadian, whatever it is, first and foremost dependent upon God for our identity in Christ. And then to demonstrate, having demonstrated dependence on God, to demonstrate what interdependence on one another looks like. Not just interdependence on those who think like us and speak our language and don't upset us, but an interdependence which includes those who are different from us. The church's response, I want to suggest, to Thursday's vote should be to continue to seek God's blessing on the nation and the nations by demonstrating our dependence on God and our interdependence on one another. I gather this week in your small groups, you will be asking the question, a regular question, what do we take from this passage of Scripture to make our Christian walk stronger? What do we take this from this to make our Christian walk stronger? I want to give you a question. What are you bewitched by in your bones that causes you to move away from dependence on God and interdependence on others? Away from the life of faith. What are you bewitched by that's in your bones, from your heritage, from your background? that causes you to move away from the life of faith. I, just sharing a bit for myself, I get bewitched into trying to impress God by overactivity. By setting myself ever more things to do and tasks to complete in order to impress him. Because the world needs saving, and I've got to do it. Woe is me. I also get bewitched into taking control back from God. Attempting to dot every I and cross every T, and asking him to bless my activity 
as an afterthought. Woe is me. Why? Why do I do that? Well, because controlling my environment and dutifully achieving things to impress others and make me feel good is in my bones. It's the thorn in my flesh. One of them, two of them. And so I get bewitched by these things, especially in a place like the Abbey with intense activity. And what happens? What happens in my ministry? Well, what happens is God gently withdraws or feels pushed to the margins, and the power of God is diminished. Thankfully, because of the grace of God, he never completely removes himself, otherwise I really would be sunk. But me moving away from the life of faith to a life of control and overactivity pushes the Spirit of God and the power of God to the margins. What about you? How do you get subtly bewitched and fall back into your old ways, the ways that are in your bones. The first thing is to be brave enough to admit to how foolish that is. It's a dead end. Life's too short. God's too great. To make a decision instead to believe in the promises of God to remember your first love of God in Christ and to walk by faith, not by sight, and so to be filled by the Spirit of God and empowered by the God of love. Because I think it's important to be practical, what does, what does life look like for that person who is dependent on God and interdependent on others. What does it look like? Firstly, I'll give you five marks that would indicate. Firstly, I would suggest their prayers reflect faith in God, not faith in God, my genie. I rather suspect if you analyze many of these prayers, a lot of us have a notion that God's the genie in the bottle. He's there actually to do my bidding. But the person who's living the life of faith, a dependence on God, simply prays to God that his will will be done. They truly look for what God is doing and what God is blessing rather than look for him to turn up and bless what they're doing. Secondly, this person... Their faith is spelt R-I-S-K, risk. They walk by faith and not by sight. Theirs is not a contract faith. Thirdly, they expect God to turn up and do what God will do in the boardroom, in the kitchen, at the school gate, in the cafe, at church in St. Swithin's, wherever it is. They expect God to turn up for his power to be active and they look out for him doing his stuff. 
They demonstrate an uncalculating generosity towards others. God, that's tough, isn't it? An uncalculating generosity towards others. And finally, they're always undergoing character transformation. And you'll see that when you get to Galatians chapter 5, where Paul talks about the fruits of the Spirit. Five marks of a person dependent on God and independent on others. Prayers reflect faith in God. Faith is spelt risk. They expect God to turn up. They demonstrate an uncalculating generosity. And they're being transformed from the inside out. Let's not be bewitched by independence. Falling back into our old ways. We are called to be children of Abraham. In right standing with God. Because we believe in his promises. And we live dependent upon him. And interdependent on one another. Amen. I'm going to